Hey everybody, how you doing? Doing all right, good. Somebody's doing really well. Happy Thanksgiving, yeah, for sure. Um, I hope you had really a wonderful time. I hope it was really great. You got to hang out with family that you don't see all the time, that you love. I hope, you know, you had amazing food. I hope that you just um, really had an opportunity to, to, you know, relax a little bit. And, you know, it's Thanksgiving, so we really, we really appreciate that. Um, I got to have, my son came home um, from Southern Adventist University. We just put him on a plane today and sent him back. My daughter, for the first time, did not come home. She stayed up with a boyfriend. I know. Oh, uh, so. But I'm, I'm, I'm told she's coming home for Christmas, so that'll be good. With the boyfriend. That's what happens, right? Um, we're in week four of a series called This Generous Life, where we are kind of delving into the idea of generosity and what scripture has to say about generosity. And so far, we've talked about some pretty amazing people, right? The widow of Zarephath, uh, the widow's might, and we talked about the widow in that story, and Hannah, the story of Hannah and, um, and the child that she gave away. So what it feels like right now is that so far, women are really good at generosity, and we have no idea if men are generous at all in scripture. Um, but we're going to rectify that today a little bit. But I said something last week that I told you we would talk about this week. And what I said last week is that gratitude generates generosity, right? That was a phrase that I used. Gratitude generates generosity. And if that's true, then the first work of generosity is actually gratitude. Thanksgiving in the Bible is both, hey, how are you guys doing? Are you just coloring? That's cool. That's great. Go for it. Perfect. Can I, I want to see it when it's done, though. I want to make sure I see it when it's done. They don't care. Um, so if gratitude generates generosity, the first work of generosity is gratitude. And when we talk about Thanksgiving in the Bible, when we talk about gratitude in the Bible, it's both for kind of the sunlit mountaintop experience and also the deep, dark valley. In fact, Paul calls us to give thanks to God in all circumstances. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, be thankful in everything. For this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. So we don't wait until our faith is so full and so strong that Thanksgiving sort of bursts at the seams. When we practice Thanksgiving, we have to practice it even when we're fearful or worried because it's part of how we set our eyes on God and cultivate faith in Him. Thanksgiving is one of these key ways that we push back against the full core press from worry, from fear and anxiety. And King David is an example of how to give thanks to God. So we're going to talk a little bit about King David today. Now, I understand it's a good question. Why would we choose David? He seems like a poor choice because he didn't make great decisions through his time. However, for some reason, he was still a man after God's own heart. And so there are a few characteristics in David that makes him a bit of a paradox when it comes to Thanksgiving, but also important to note. The first thing about David is this. David was passionate. David was nothing if not passionate. And this got him to a lot of trouble. Have you ever been accused of being too passionate? Yes. Yeah, of course. We know you have, man. Right? This happens, right? Sometimes you're so passionate about something that people, if you've ever heard the word relax... Has anyone ever told you to relax? Then you're the passionate one, right? If you're the one who's telling people to relax, you need to get in touch with your emotions a little bit. By the way, relax never works. 
doesn't work, doesn't ever work. It just makes a passionate person more passionate and more, in fact, I, so I'm a pastor, you know that. Um, I'm a pastor and I get pretty passionate about stuff. I can get pretty like fired up. And I was in this discussion with someone one time and they said, you're not supposed to be so aggressive. You're a pastor, back off. And I was like, I'm not aggressive, I'm passionate. And the person said, I don't think you know the difference. And I was like, I don't think you know the difference. And then I was aggressive. So it didn't work too well. Um, listen, David lived there, right? David lived with passion, which means he was super connected to his emotions, right? Connected to passion is someone who is emotional. David was emotional in his approach to life. This is why he wrote poetry, right? Listen, most of us at one point in life have tried poetry. And if you haven't, you should, right? Because it connects you with your emotions. A, a couple things happen when you write poetry. First of all, you realize this is really hard because if you've ever read poetry and you've read good poetry, you know it's beautiful. And if you've ever read bad poetry, you know it's the worst, just the worst. And like when you write poetry, what's awesome is that you write it and then you let it sit for a while and then you go back to read it and you find out whether you are all that connected to your emotions or you just like to rhyme things, right? Poetry is brutal. I used to write a lot of poetry when I was, you know, when I was a teenager, I was feeling things. Um, and so I'd like write, I'd write it. Um, but, but David was like that. David wrote amazing amounts of poetry because he was kind of all up in his feelings, right? He was just like all up in it, as the kids say. I think everyone should try writing poetry, but don't show it to anybody, by and large. So he was passionate, connected to his emotions, but he was also really transparent, right? He, he wore his heart on his sleeve. You knew what he was feeling. Like he'd dance naked in front of everybody if he was feeling it. He'd say things he shouldn't have said. He made decisions he shouldn't have said, but he was one thing. He was transparent. He was super honest with God, probably to a fault, but it brought us the Psalms, right? The Psalms prove especially helpful for seeing thanksgiving as a weapon against worry, a catalyst for generosity, and a mirror to look back at ourselves and recognize all that it is that we have been given. But where did the Psalms come from? Because Psalms are so beautifully written. I think that we sometimes feel or sometimes imagine that they must have been written from some serene cabin in the woods somewhere, right? Somewhere up in Montana, snow lightly falling, lake out in front of us, fire in the fireplace, just writing beautiful poetry. It's not really the case, right? In reality, the psalmist crafted many of their words in the midst of the danger, in the midst of danger, right? Trials, even suffering. David penned a number of the psalms when he was actually in the wilderness running and hiding from his enemies, abandoned, betrayed, hungry, thirsty, weary. That's when he started to write. See, the Psalms in the wilderness were forged in the fire, not on a spiritual retreat. It wasn't when things were good. It was when things were bad. It was while David was in the midst of the fire that he wrote some of the most poignant Psalms. And while David does cry out for help in these Psalms, he always pairs his prayers for deliverance with prayers of thanksgiving. When David's life was full of things that would cause worry and should have caused worry, he would give intentional thanks. Right? He gives thanks to set his eyes and heart on God, who is much bigger, by the way, than his enemies, than the circumstances that he finds himself in. Rather than being consumed with fear about his situation, he gives thanks to God who rules over those situations. And how did he did it? You know, how, how, how would he do this? 
How did David give thanks to God? In a few different ways. And these ways are kind of good examples for us to understand of how we can give thanks to God in the midst of everything we're going through. The first thing David did, and this is the easy one for us to do in our lives, is he looked back. Sometimes David gave thanks for how God had delivered, protected, and provided in the past. You see Psalms 105 through 107. Right? And before walking, Israel's history, before walking through Israel's history, as he does in 106 and 107, of fickleness and God's faithfulness, David writes this in Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Right? Things that he's done. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Remember the wondrous works that have been done, that he has done, his miracles and judgments he uttered. David remembered and David reminds himself God works as a way to fill his heart with worship. It's why we sing songs too. We come here, we sing songs first because we want to fill our hearts with gratitude and a reminder of what God has done and how he has worked in the past. He looks back and remembers God's faithfulness. He recounts God's deliverance, his mercy, his compassion, his justice, even his judgment he remembers as a positive And that helps sustain his faith in the present. So, simple question for you. When do you look back and see God's faithfulness? And I'm not talking about looking back into Scripture and seeing God's faithfulness. That's great. It's all over the place. I'm talking about looking back in your life, looking back a couple weeks, a couple months, a couple years, a couple decades. It depends on how old you are, right? It's a good exercise for us to do at times in our lives, to see where God has taken care of us. And it's so fascinating to me that we often see God in hindsight better than we see him in the present day, right? God can be faithful right now today and we won't see it. God will be faithful right now today and we will act like we are in the worst suffering of our lives that we've ever been. But six six months from now, you're going to look back on today and be like, God was faithful even then. For some reason, God's faithfulness is made more clear in hindsight. So we have to look back and see how God has been faithful over the years, months, weeks, minutes even. But David would do another thing. Sometimes David wouldn't look back. Sometimes David would just consider who God is. Sometimes the Psalms would just consider how good God is and focus on that. David will give thanks to God because of his compassion and power and mercy and faithfulness and love. Right? Psalm 54, 6 says it beautifully. With a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. He just says, listen, God is going to be good. I believe God is good. And so I'm going I'm to hold on to that goodness that God has. David thanks God for his goodness, his compassion, his power, his mercy, his faithfulness, and his love. He doesn't wait for the trouble to stop. He doesn't wait for the worry to fade. But he gives thanks in the midst of the trial. So this is what we understand. David practiced thanksgiving in the wilderness, and that is sometimes what we should consider as well. I mean, is God good when things are good for you, or is he good regardless of your circumstances? I mean, why would we give thanks only when it looks good from our vantage point? I've said this before, but I'm going to continue to repeat it because I think it's something that we need to learn. Blessing is not when things are going well for you. And we answer that question too often, too quickly, thinking that blessing means things are good, right? How are you doing? Oh, I'm blessed. Oh, that means things are going well in your life. How about this? Everything's falling apart and somebody says, how are you doing? Like, could be better, but I'm blessed. That's a different kind of answer. 
right? The problem is we equate blessing as transactional with God. I'll tell God that he's doing good in my life and that God is good when things are going well in my life. But when things aren't going well, then I'm not blessed. That's not true. The truth is sometimes when you are the most blessed and you feel the most presence of God, because by the way, that's what blessing is. Blessing is the presence of God in your life. Blessing is the peace that passes understanding. Blessing is all those things. Blessing is not things working out. But we believe that it is. If you can get to the point where you understand that even at the worst times, you might be the most blessed because that's when you feel the presence of God most powerfully, then you understand the blessing of God. A gentleman was just sharing with me, he was just sharing with me, reminding me that when Job had his whole family taken from him, what did he do? He fell on his knees and he praised God. He worshiped God when Job had his whole family taken from him. And this man's telling me this, and then he starts crying, and he says, that's what I had to do when my son was killed. That happened 20 minutes ago. Blessing is not things working out. Blessing is the presence of God in your life. David practiced thanksgiving in the wilderness because those were the times, perhaps, when he was really feeling the presence of God. He felt the presence of God in the wilderness probably more than he felt the presence of God on the throne when he was sitting on it. But he wrote these things because he knew this. He knew that God listens. David recognized that God listens to his people. As wild as that seems, God can take it all in. All your prayers, all your groans, all your cries, all your worship, he can take it all in. God is not one of those people who focuses so much they can't hear anything. Do you know those people? I'm married to one of those people. My wife is amazing in her focus. She'll be working on something and I'll come in and I'll start talking to her and I'll go and I'll realize I'm not getting the kind of reaction that I'm get, I want or any reaction. And so I'm like, hey, hey, hey. And then she like comes out of whatever she's doing. And she's like, were you talking? I was like, literally, I was talking for like nine minutes here. And she's like, I didn't hear a word of it. And like, listen, when we first got married, I thought, sure. <laughs> a likely story. Legitimately, her children, when they were small, our children. <laughs> but not just, when I say it that way, it sounds weird. They're our children. They would come up and they'd be like, mom, mom. She couldn't hear a thing. Because she was so focused. God's not like that. God hears it all. I said that. I said that differently this time. I hope you understand what I mean. I love my wife dearly. I feel like there's no way to get out. I just need to move on, right? I'm not fixing this. If you tell her anything that I've said, you cannot come to church here anymore. It's a community of belonging except for you, okay? <laughs> Let's be clear. David knew that God listened, right? In fact, he said it in Psalm 66. He said, but truly God has listened. He's attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love for me. David recognized that God is an active listener. He hears and he responds. It's beautiful. And this is why he can write stuff, because he knows God's listening to the stuff that he writes. And he expected God to work. David gave thanks to God. And he connected his prayer requests in expectation that God will act. Psalm 52 is kind of a, a, a long diatribe about that. I'm just going to read Psalm 52, 8 and 9. He says, where David says, but I am like an olive tree thriving in the house of God. 
I'll always trust in God's unfailing love. I will praise you forever, O God, for what you have done. I will trust in your good name and the presence of your faithful people. He's making the argument that God moves and he's living a life where he expects God to move. And I gotta tell you, I, I worry that the church, and I think particularly our tradition, has a tendency to believe God moved, but is a bit afraid to believe that God still moves. We say we believe in the movement of God and the action of God and the activity of God, but we live our lives kind of like we're agnostic, not expecting God to do anything. And I think that's a shame because if God has proven himself to be a God of movement before, then God will be a God of movement still because God doesn't change. And I think when you live your life this way, you, you can say the things like Paul might have had in his mind when he writes in Philippians 4, 6 and 7, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, and I love this next piece, right? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. You are not going to understand the peace that you have. You will be in the midst of the worst thing that you're going through, and you will have a sense of peace that you should not have. You should be angry. You should be upset. You should be confused. You may be all those things, and yet you still have a sense of peace. Some of you right now are going through really difficult periods of waiting. Some of you are going through really difficult trials in your life, and you still somehow can have that peace because it passes what makes sense. I love that Paul said it that way, right? It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Anxiety robs our peace, but trusting in and thanking God provides peace and rest, and in turn, it generates generosity. David did another thing. David made sure that he was looking around to see where God is already working, even though he would look back to where God had worked, and he was certainly thankful for it, he was also constantly looking for where God was presently working in his life, in his nation, in the world. And man, the, when you're a young pastor, you think that your job is to bring God places. Like God shows up when you show up because you're God's representative. Like you, I don't know if they teach you that or you think that or whatever, but like you're a man of God, that's the things they say, or a woman of God, and like this is your job. And I remember going to places, like le legitimately like opening up my Bible and trying to memorize text really quickly so I'll have something to say in the midst of trauma or in the midst of loss, right, so I can bring God and the presence of God there. I'll tell you what, every single time I showed up at a place, God was already there. God was there way before I got there, ministering through somebody else, through another person, through an aunt or an uncle or a family member or a family friend who was already there ministering to the people. In fact, a lot of times I was just in the way because I hate it when this happens. As a pastor, you walk into a place where something's happened and somebody's ministering to someone else and they're praying and they go, oh, the pastor's here and they stop what they're doing. They stop their minute and they're like, okay, you can. And you're like, I'm not, uh, uh, you, the, oh, shoot. That's how you feel, because you're like, I guess I got to do it now. Not like I don't want to do it, but like you were ministering. Why should I step in? You don't need me. God's already present. I didn't bring God anywhere. I just got to show up and look for where God is already working. 
And that's what we have to do when we want to live this life of gratitude. See where God is already working in your life. And it's usually outside of you, right? Because we can't see that till later. Psalm 138. I bow before you in your holy temple as I worship. I praise your name for your unfailing love and faithfulness. For your promises are backed by all the honor of your name. As soon as I pray, you answer me that quick. God is already working. As soon as I pray, you answer me. You encourage me by giving you strength. David acknowledges God's present work, his continued action on behalf of David and his people. So, of course, we've got to ask the question, where do you see God working today? In your life, in your family, in your friends, in your children, where do you see God opening up hearts, trying to find a, a little bit of a foothold? When we recognize this, when we take the time to recognize this, gratitude can be the only response. Right? But how does gratitude end up as generosity? Why would that be the next logical step? We can see this as we move to the end of David's life and his willingness to help his son build the temple that Solomon would ultimately build. And I got to tell you, when you go to Jerusalem and you go to the old city and you go to the Western Wall and you, you, you go in and you see Solomon's temple, right? The, the massive marble stone from Solomon's temple, you realize that this is what David was talking about. These stones that were laid right here, it's amazing. Right, so this is the situation David finds himself in. Imagine yourself, let's do a hypothetical. Imagine yourself as a church leader. You're getting towards the end of your, your career and your job is to raise money for a church worship center sanctuary because that's essentially what David was doing. Right, this will be the congregation's first real stable place. You're coming to the end of your career but you want to lead in this venture. This is where we find David at the end of his reign. So this is the fundraising message that he sends out. And it comes from a life full of gratitude. Then King David turned to the entire assembly and said, My son Solomon, whom God has clearly chosen to be the next king of Israel, still young, he's inexperienced. The work ahead of him is enormous, for the temple he will build is not for mere mortals. It is for the king it is for the Lord God himself. And I love that he's saying, hey, we need to do this. Let's not leave this task to the young people. Let our legacy be something that they can use, not something they just have to pay for. And I love that sentiment, I gotta tell you. So David says, listen, this is what I've already done. Using every resource at my command as king, I have gathered as much as I could for building the temple of God. Now there's enough gold and silver and bronze, iron and wood. Like there's enough, as well as great quantities of onyx, other precious stones, costly jewels, and all kinds of fine stone and marble. He said, I've been working my whole life towards this as a king. And now we have the resources. Which sounds generous, but it's not really. It was his job. So he takes one step further and he says, and now because of my own devotion to the temple of God. I'm giving all 
of my own private treasures of gold and silver to help in the construction. This in addition to the building materials that we've collected as king for his holy temple. He's like, I'm going to give more of what I have. I'm going to give, and by the way, did you hear what he said? I'm giving all of my private treasures. I'm giving it all away. Now, really, really successful, you know, like financially successful people have seen that. We've seen this in today's world. You know, Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, they, they give away all this money. Um, and, and some of that definitely does come from gratitude. I'm not going to speak for Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos, but what we see in the life of David is that even with all the mistakes and all the foolishness that he did, he still had an, uh, uh, this, this line, this kind of golden string of gratitude through everything he wrote and sang and spoke right? Gratitude was there through the whole thing, and it comes to the end of his life, and through that gratitude, it, it's the catalyst that moves towards generosity. And when I say he was generous, this is what he says. I'm donating more than 112 tons of gold from offer. Do the math on that. 262 tons of refined silver to be used for overlaying the walls of the building and for the other gold and silver work to be done by the craftsmen. Now then, who will follow my example and give offerings to the Lord today, give themselves to the Lord today? This is his call, right? He's generous and he invites others into the generosity that come from his gratitude for what God has done. And I wanna stop here for a moment and mention something because I've got a friend in my life who, um, he's a bit older and, you know, was just phenomenally successful in his life, but he, he's given almost everything away. Um, art, art collections and even his home is slated to be given away um, when he passes. And he knows that I'm preaching on generosity and he, and he always reminds me, hey, don't forget to talk about the joy there is in giving. And I'm like, yeah, 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 God loves a cheerful giver. And he's like, no, I don't know about that. I don't know. The joy that comes, the deep joy that comes from being able to give, right? And the problem is we think, oh, well, somebody's done well for themselves so they can give and they find that joy. It's not about the quantity. It's about the intent and the, the quality of the gift. And he always reminds me, don't forget to talk about the joy of giving, not just from your surplus, but the joy of generosity that comes from a right heart, right? David says, listen, I'm going to give everything that I've got to this righteous thing. And then he says, you know, who's going who's gonna to join me with this? But I got to tell you, the, the leaders then come, if you know the story, after, God, after David kind of makes this call, the leaders come and they mirror the king's example of generosity. Only after these examples do the people come forward with their offerings of precious stones. But it was the responsibility of the leaders to lead not only with their mouths, but also with their pockets. We cannot ask people to be generous when they themselves have not been generous, when we ourselves have not been generous. You see, David understood something about generosity. Generosity is a spiritual activity. He sees giving as an act of worship, not a transaction. In fact, really, in the original text, he doesn't 
and invite people to give material possessions as much as he invites them to give themselves wholly to God. And it was their gratitude, it was David's gratitude that informed his generosity. So there's a question for you. How is your gratitude informing your generosity? Not your quantity, but your quality. How is your gratitude for the way you've been loved by God allowing you to overflow the love that you have to other people? How is the gratitude that you have from growing up in a family where you did experience love, if that was your experience, to give love to your children and to their friends and to their people who might not have that kind of family? How are you giving of your time because time has been so graciously given to you? How is your gratitude informing the way that you give? And how are you experiencing that joy? Because if we're going to lead this generous life, and we're going to model it after those who gave generously in Scripture, then the first work is to recognize what you have been given and live with a gratitude for that that is overwhelming. Thanksgiving shouldn't come once a year. Thanksgiving should be a palpable presence in your life every day because you recognize that God is working, has worked, will work. He listens, and He is good. So if that's the life you want to lead, recognize your gratitude and see how that informs this generous life. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're just grateful. We always are. We're thankful for what it is that you've done. Thank you for your son, his gift of incarnation, crucifixion and resurrection. Lord, we thank you for all of it. Lord, make us recognize what's been given to us so we can live in that gratitude. And may that gratitude generate and propel our generosity as we live this life. Lord, we're grateful for you. Thank you. In your name I pray. Amen. Stand and worship with us one more time.